Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. When the modern state of Israel was established in 1948, just a few years after the end of World War II and the liberation of the Nazi death camps, the German language was largely taboo in the new Jewish state. In fact, German wasn't even taught at the Hebrew University, even though about 50% of its faculty were educated in German institutions. It wasn't actually taught in the university um, until the mid-50s, when there started to be diplomatic relations between West Germany and Israel. That's Rachel Selig. And I am an institute fellow at the Frankel Institute for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. Selig is co-editor of a volume of essays about the relationship between German and Hebrew and author of the book Strangers in Berlin, Modern Jewish Literature Between East and West, 1919 to 1933. She says that throughout Israel's first decade, German was seen almost exclusively and not surprisingly as the language of the perpetrators of the Holocaust. The language of the Nazis, um, a language that was to be shunned and really excluded from Israeli culture. But at least among some Israeli literary artists, Selig says, German was not entirely shunned. Even before 1948, when Israel was still known as Palestine, some Jewish writers and poets transplanted from Germany were mingling Hebrew and German in their work. Poets such as Ludwig Strauss, a German Jew who immigrated to Palestine in the mid-1930s at the age of 45, and who became a mentor to younger writers. He was one of the founders of the Department of Comparative Literature at the Hebrew University, and he gave these wonderful lectures on world literature and on Hebrew literature. And he was sort of one of these figures who made young aspiring writers and scholars of literature aware of some of the intersections between European literature and this new developing Israeli literature. And a lot of really important writers were his students. One such writer is the poet Tuvia Rubner. Tuvia Rubner, um, and you'll notice that I just pronounced his name in the German fashion. He's got that fancy umlaut, the two dots over the U, that makes him Rubner, but a uh, typical Israeli wouldn't really be able to pronounce that. So in, in Israel, he's known as Tuvia Rivner. And I find that interesting, actually, because in a sense, this is a poet with a dual identity, a German identity and a Hebrew-Israeli identity, and he kind of has two names to match that. Rubner's dual identity also manifests in his poetry. Initially, Rubner wrote exclusively in German, but eventually began writing in Hebrew. German was, for him, the language of, uh, still is, the language of memory, the language he associates with his family, all of whom were, were killed in Auschwitz. And he was the one survivor who then made this transition into, um, into Hebrew um, and wrote extensively in that language. And then actually began translating his own writing in the 1990s into German. So it's a really interesting phenomenon because not only is he a self-translator, that is translating himself, his own writing, but he's also translating from um, a language that he learned um, as a young man back into his mother tongue. Studying Rubner's multilingualism and acts of self-translation, Selig says, 
reveals important insights about the role that language can play in the creative process. We talk about often what's lost in translation, but in his case, there are often really interesting gains in translation, wordplay um, or allusions that maybe weren't present in Hebrew that are present in German. And that sort of got me to thinking, which language really is the original? In a sense, is it possible that he was actually thinking these poems in German, writing them in Hebrew, and then translating them back into German? So it really um, raises all kinds of questions about the creative process and the language in which one feels at home. Rubner's writing also raises questions for Selig about how scholars tend to identify and categorize literature according to nationality. We have Israeli literature, German literature, American literature, and so on. Um, Now, in Rubiner's case, because he has translated himself into German, and the interesting thing here is that when he publishes his work in German, he doesn't necessarily label it as a translation because he's the author, so why bother? Um, And so he's actually won a major award in Germany. A few years ago, he won the Konrad Adenauer Prize, major literary award, and it was awarded to him as a German poet. In other words, he was even he was described as a German exile poet living in Israel. Um, now, in Israel, on the other hand, where he's also been recognized um, with a major honor, he won the Israel Prize in, um, I believe, in 2008. There, he has been described as a Hebrew poet who writes about the Holocaust. So two completely different, this is essentially two different people in one. And it raises all kinds of questions about the way that we actually read and study and categorize literature. Maybe some of these national um, boundaries that we impose upon it aren't always so relevant. Like Rubner, the Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai, whose given name was Ludwig Pfeiffer, was a native German speaker. Born in southern Germany, Amichai was raised on German literature until the age of 12, when he immigrated to Palestine in 1935 and later adopted the patriotic Zionist surname Amichai, which in Hebrew means, my nation lives. Amichai has since become famous as arguably among the most quintessential and revered Israeli poets writing in Hebrew. But also like Rubner, Amichai had a complex and enduring relationship with his native language. Amichai actually commented that um, he really was an admirer of Goethe and even described walking around in Jerusalem or in the the Judean hills and in the forests around there and trying to sort of imagine Goethe's descriptions of nature transplanted into this Middle Eastern landscape. Similar to Rubner's experiments with self-translation, Amichai wrote not only in Hebrew, but also in German, sometimes simultaneously. If you look into his archives, um, there are actually a lot of fragments of German writing and even um, texts that he wrote simultaneously in both German and Hebrew, which is not exactly an easy task since German is written from left to right and Hebrew from right to left. And so he writes this sort of disorienting um, poetry or fragments of poetry that where these two languages literally collide. Amichai not only wrote in German, but also wrote about Germany. He also wrote um, radio plays in the 1960s, which aren't particularly well known. 
Um, but uh, one of them actually takes place in his native Germany. Um, he also wrote a novel, um, a lot, uh, much of which takes place in Germany. Um, so this is sort of the unknown um, or lesser known Amichai, who was really kind of lurking in the shadows behind what we know as the Israeli Amichai. Today, Selig says, German language and culture are much less taboo in Israel, not only for writers and other artists, but also for Israelis generally. A primary example of this relatively recent openness to German is the growing presence of Israelis living in Berlin. There are now thousands of Israelis living in Berlin, and if you walk around the streets of Berlin today, chances are you're going to hear Hebrew being spoken. In fact, I once had an experience that I was in a German cafe placing an order with the wait- waitress who was sort of stuttering and having a hard time expressing herself, and suddenly I heard her say, eh, and I thought, okay, that's a giveaway. She's an Israeli, and I started speaking to her in Hebrew, and sure enough, she had just immigrated two years prior, was trying to learn German. Many Israelis in Berlin, Selig says, are young and liberal in their politics, and ironically, went to Berlin as a sort of refuge from what they see as oppressive and frustrating in Israeli society. They're frustrated with the high cost of living in cities like Tel Aviv. They're frustrated with growing right-wing politics, um, with the um, constant tension between right and left and between um, Israelis and Arabs. And they're kind of looking at a place like Berlin as a refuge, as somewhere that to them seems really liberal and open to all kinds of newcomers and outsiders. Among Israeli expats living in Berlin... One of the most well-known is the journalist and poet Madi Shmuelov, a Mizrahi or Eastern Jew of Iraqi and Iranian origin, who often writes about life in Berlin for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. He writes a lot about, not just about being a Jew, but also about interactions between all different minorities in Germany. So going to a cafe where he'll meet exiles from Iran, um, people from Iraq, um, and this Syrian refugees and so on. Writers like Shmuelov and other Israelis in Berlin, in Selig's view, have raised interesting and important questions about the standard Zionist framing of Israeli Jewish identity. For example, when former Israeli government minister Yair Lapid criticized Israelis living in Berlin for abandoning the Jewish homeland for the country that slaughtered their grandparents, Shmulov and other Mizrahi Jews in Berlin challenged the very premise of Lapid's argument. Where they sort of say, well, but wait a minute, our parents weren't killed in the death camps. Our parents came from Iran and Iraq and Morocco, and they have a different story. So in a weird way, this Israeli migration to Berlin is also shedding new light on a really central tension in Israeli society, which is between Ashkenazim, or Jews of European origin, and Mizrahim, Jews of Middle Eastern and North African origin, where they're saying, look, the narrative, there isn't one narrative here. It's much more complex and much messier. The overarching thrust of Selig's research, she says, is to challenge the notion that Israeli identity and Hebrew are inextricably linked, and to push back against the sentiment that Israeli culture really is or ought to be monolingual, with Hebrew as the only desirable and acceptable national language. Most people will probably be aware that there, in Israel there are two national languages, Hebrew and Arabic, and there are, of course, a whole host of other languages that are spoken on a daily basis, from Russian to Amharic um, to 
uh, once upon a time Yiddish, maybe no longer. But what I'm interested in maybe salvaging in looking at some of these bilingual German-Hebrew writers is this multilingual option. These writers, because of their own multilingual origins and their own sort of divided multilingual commitments, they represent a kind of openness to other languages or even to the language of the other, um, be it German or Arabic or, or whatever the case may be. This sort of openness is important, Selig says, because it's a way to question and combat the rising tide of suspicion of foreigners and immigrants in Israel and elsewhere. In Israel and, and in much of the world today, we're seeing a real rise of nativism, almost kind of tribal identity, where um, even in, in this country, in the United States, we see um, this uh, a lot of right-wing rhetoric, um, anti-immigrant rhetoric, saying you come to America, you have to become American and learn English. Moreover, Selig says, exploring and celebrating multilingualism in Israeli culture helps us better understand and appreciate that culture. And so by drawing attention to writers, especially writers who are maybe seen as monolingual or generally sold and presented as monolingual, and really digging beneath the surface and finding their multilingual origins, that it maybe gives us a sense of the value of the immigrant experience of languages crossing borders in, in, in the production of culture um, and the culture that we consume, be it literature or film, um, this, this culture that we consume every day. That's it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. We'd love to know what you thought about this episode, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us some comments. Thanks for listening.